Hey folks, welcome to my podcast. My name is Damon and these are Theater Tales of the Techie and what I try to do is share my 40 plus years of experience in the theater industry with high school uh, young men and women and college young men and women and uh, essentially hopefully let you know that working in the theater industry is a really viable option and it's a kick-ass way of life. And yes, you can make a living and make enough money so your mommy and daddy doesn't insist you have to be a doctor or a lawyer or something really boring. So tonight, folks, what we're going to talk about is normal. So, um, oh, and it is Monday, August 4th, and it's about uh, 9.45 at night. And folks, I got a warning. I might have to stop this podcast a couple of times because I got a couple of friends that keep texting me. Um, about an aviation-related matter because someone's trying to get a UAV to work. And um, I guess we never sleep when we're busy, right? So, folks, um, a couple of weeks ago, a really cool um, young man reached out to me and sent me a very long and very detailed and very cool email and was asking me about uh, different things. Um, Oh, and we're going to actually talk about two things tonight. We're going to talk about what is normal, and then we're going to talk about burnout. You know, um, do you, you know, how do you, how do you keep from burning out working in this industry? Okay. So we're going to go over normal. We're going to talk about burnout. We're going to talk about uh, rigging, lighting, big projects, and lunch and learns. Excuse me. And uh, I'll tell you in a little bit what a lunch and learn is, folks. And folks, just to make sure everybody understands the rules, I do not discuss anything basically that's happened in the last eight to 10 years of my life. I work for a really kick-ass company, and I just don't want anybody to ever think that when I say, like, somebody really sucks, that they think I'm talking about somebody I work with right now, okay? Or I say, oh, somebody's really awesome, and then everybody else thinks they suck, okay? So that's not my intent of these podcasts at all, to talk about the last eight or ten years of my life. Uh, And I've done this a long time, so I still got, like, what, 32 years I can talk about? So, folks, a couple of things. When this young man reached out to me, I read his email probably 20 times because I, I'm try- I love to get my head around what makes people tick, what makes them think, you know, how those gears work in their brain. So, um, and this young man has been very busy because he started his senior year of college and was getting moved back into his apartment. And we just couldn't connect the dots until a couple of days ago when we actually were able to talk. Well, actually about a week ago now. And, um, one of the things that he said to me, and folks, I didn't laugh at him, okay? I, I don't, him and I really, I think, uh, have a great relationship of just um, being theater people, even though we've only spoken once. I mean, we spoke for like two hours and 10 minutes. But one of the things about this uh, young man that he said to me that made me kind of burst out laughing, and I told him, I said, look, I'm not laughing at you at all. And he goes, oh, no, I get it. And so he said to me, how long do you got to work before this all feels normal? And I said, why would you want to be normal? And he goes, I I don't understand. And I asked him, I said, "Um, do you think like when a race car driver races a car that their life ever gets normal? I mean, maybe it gets, it becomes routine or they get used to it. But I said, you don't want normal. And I told him there's an author, folks, uh, named Richard Bach. And Richard Bach wrote a book called Jonathan Livington Siegel. And some of you may have read that back in the day in school. Sometimes people wanted you to read it. And basically, it was about this seagull that didn't want to just follow the rules. He wanted to fly aerobatics. He wanted to zoom around like the Blue Angels. And he, he convinced a bunch of his friends to do it with him. 
and he was kind of a rebel. And and folks, I'm telling you, you know, if you listen to my podcast, you know that I'm a pilot. And, you know, there's nothing really that daring about being a pilot. But I love to do aerobatics. You know, I've I've flown in a Satabra, a Decathlon, an AT6, a uh, uh, oh, a, a Cessna 150 aerobat. And I love doing aerobatics so much, folks. I still throw up a lot after I do them. Now, it's been three or four years since, you know, technically, folks, I'm not a legal pilot right now. I haven't had a biannual. I haven't had a medical, uh, which you don't need to fly ultralights. But the thing is, folks, most people don't think people who fly airplanes are normal or do aerobatics in airplane are normal. I used to skydive. There's nothing normal about that. Um, theater people will work 60 hours a week and love it. There's nothing normal about that. And, you know, and Richard Bach actually wrote a book called Running from Safety. And it's kind of a weird kind of spiritual. It's not religious. And folks, if you know from my past podcast, I never talk about religion, never talk about politics, but I'm a very spiritual person. And the thing is, is that um, running from safety means what, you know, how much fun are you going to have if you run towards safety every time? You're not. So I'm going to, I'm and now folks, I want to talk about burnout really briefly. And then I'm going to talk about how some rigging jobs are never normal. Lighting jobs are never normal. Um, the big projects I would do were never normal. Um, and the lunch and learns I did were never normal. But guess what? I was incredibly successful at them. And to me, in this industry, success is really three silos. Do people love you? Do you create revenue? And do you create monstrous margins? Because folks, somewhere along the line, someone's got to pay you a paycheck. And if you're not making a lot of money for them and making a lot of margin, which is profit, you're normal. They don't need you. No, I'm kidding. Um, but I want to talk about burnout for a minute because this young man asked me, he goes, how do you keep from being burned out? And folks, I want to describe something. I'm going to try to do it. Folks, I really want this podcast to not be like 40 or 45 minutes. So I'm trying to go a little bit fast. I'm trying to keep it very to the point. So I told him about one week when I traveled and I remember this week very, very well. And here's the thing is I probably had 30 weeks like this. No, I probably had more than that. I probably had a hundred weeks like this over the last 30 years or 40 years. Um, but on Sundays, so folks, when I used to go out and do field sales, I would manage like 30 to 36 rep firms uh, across the country. And when I mean managed, I managed them for, um, they didn't work for me. These were commercial reps that would sell a product I had, like automated rigging. And I'd have to go out into the field with them and visit architects, consultants, owners, and users, everybody who might want to buy it or have a piece or a process of buying the product that uh, the, the manufacturer I work, worked for wanted them to sell. And the more I was on the road, the more money I would bring back into the factory. It was absolutely like Einstein's uh, formula of relativity that the more I was on the road, the more revenue and more margin I was able to obtain for this company I work for. And those commercial reps, folks, every time they sold something, they got paid. So I had some reps that probably made three times what I was making. And I was making great money when I was a, a rep. Oh my God, that's when I made the most money I ever made in this industry over four years. And um, so folks, so let me try to tell you this to you really, really quickly. I would leave on a Sunday afternoon and this is this is a real week that happened and it was right before Christmas. I don't know how many years ago, 15 years ago, probably. 
or maybe even 17. Um, Sunday afternoon, I would fly out to California and Monday morning started like 730 in the morning with my rep. We'd go see two or three clients and then at noon we'd have lunch uh, with a client. And then that afternoon we'd see two or three clients and then that evening we'd have a dinner. Well, that night, Monday night, I then jumped in my rental car and did the two hour and five minute drive down to San Diego or whatever that drive is. I get to San Diego about midnight, get into my hotel, go to sleep. Tuesday morning, get up with another rep. We run all over San Diego, see all of our clients. That night we have a dinner and then I get to the airport, jump on a flight to San Francisco, land in San Francisco about 1030 at night, maybe 11, get my rental car, get to the hotel. It's midnight or 1230. Folks, does this sound normal? No. But was I able to bring in monstrous revenue? Hell yeah, it was great. So, um, and then let's see, how did that work? On Wednesday in San Fran, we'd go see all of our clients. Thursday, we went out to Oakland and went way out east to the uh, desert, wherever that is. Uh, I can't remember the name of the town, uh, that big city out there. And then that night, I'd get back about 10 o'clock. No, I'm sorry. I'd get back about 8.30 to the airport at San Fran. I would jump on a plane Thursday night and go to L.A., jump on the 10.30 red eye back to Indianapolis, where I live. And I'd get to my back home at 5.30 a.m. on Friday. And then I would work literally, well, I'd take a shower first because I was so grimy from being on that red eye. But then I would basically um, work until about three that afternoon. And then I would be, honestly, folks, totally exhausted. Mentally, physically, I was spent. But was I anywhere near burnout? Hell no, because I was having fun and I was selling a crap load of product. Everybody was happy. The reps were happy. I was happy. So, folks, burnout has nothing to do with the amount of hours I ever worked in my life. It never had to do with getting into a hotel at 1230 in the morning. And, you know, folks, is that depressing sometimes? Uh, maybe a little. I mean, the, the hardest impact on me was not watching my daughter grow up the way I wish I could have. Um, but I'm paying for her four years at a really big college with all of that money I made. So uh, I don't want my da daughter to come out of college with a dime of debt, folks. I don't want her to have a dime of debt when she comes out of college. And um, so the thing is, is that um, I told this young man, that was an awesome week. And he's like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I could do that. I said, yeah, you could. If you've got that tenacity, that drive and determination, and if you got all those cool words, if you understand your why, why is a big word again, folks, it seems like every four or five years that becomes a big buzzword. And it's very important. Simon Sinek has a really good thing about why. If, you, if you've never heard of Simon Sinek, uh, go look him up on YouTube. So with that said, folks, I want to tell you what burns me out, okay? I have had several bosses in the past, uh, a long time ago in a universe far, far away, that would just always try to F up my success, I would be kicking ass. I don't know if it was jealousy or they thought, well, gosh, if Damon can double our sales, maybe he can triple our sales. And they would come in and say some of the dumbest things. Damon, we're going to turn 90 degrees right here and we're going to you know, increase this or we're going to do this. And I'm like, that won't work. That won't work in this industry. What you're trying to tell me won't work. And folks, that's where I got burned out, a burnout. So I told you I worked for a manufacturer a long time ago that they brought me in as a theater person, a theater salesperson to help them. For a year, they didn't listen to me. So I left. I was so burned out when I left that company. 
um, that luckily I was able to get my breath back because a year later they begged me back and gave me a lot more money. And then we had a blast. Sometimes people just don't want to believe us theater people. If you're a theater person listening to me, think about it. You've got four years experience in high school in theater. You're going to have four years in experience in college. And then if you work four years out in the field and then decide to go work for a dealer or a manufacturer or a rep, you know, if, if you look at the Dunning-Kruger effect, you're already an expert. I hate the word expert, but it's true. And all the studies say at that point, 12 years doing the same industry, you're an expert. And folks, when you meet other theater people, they get you. It's like you all grew up in the same city, but you just never quite become friends. That's another thing about this theater industry, folks, is if you're a non-theater person and you go start talking to theater people, they'll, it takes forever to warm up to you. They'll be cordial. They'll be nice. You'll walk away and go, good God, that guy doesn't know what a twofer is. Good God, that guy doesn't know what a Dutchman or a Keystone or a Crossing. I mean, Keystone or a, I just said Keystone the Crossing. My God, that's a mall in Indianapolis. What a Keystone or a corner block or a toggle or a rail. You know, folks, people that aren't theater, they don't know those things. And, um, you know, they don't know what a dimmer is. So with that said, folks, I'm going to move on to the word normal and rigging. So folks, when I, uh, I always try to look at times in my life in this industry where I think I had the most fun and there's like 6,000 of them. Okay. But um, I had a boss send me down one time and say, Damon, how are we making so much money on these rigging jobs that you do? And why can't we do more? And if you've listened to my past podcast, this same boss was a doorknob and had me try to do a couple of extra jobs that summer. And our, our, our uh, uh, margin just went to crap. So, folks, when, when, when you, if you ever install rigging, you need to uh, put yourself in the middle of a bunch of SEAL Team 6 snipers. And what I mean by that is you need the best of the best installers that you can find. You need an installer so good that if they are a sniper, they could hit a running target at 5,000 yards with both eyes closed. Okay. You, I mean, folks, this is the thing about the success or failure of rigging in this industry is the installation. And folks, when I did installations, I got the best third-party installers there were at the time in this industry, in my opinion. And I'm, I know I'm right. <laughs> but the thing is, is that when I remember, uh, oh, another thing is, is six months before the install is when you start your prep. You're talking to the GC. You're making sure the steel's in the right place. You're doing some site visits. It's really like launching a rocket. Those six months before putting in that rigging job are the most important months of a, su a successful rigging job. In every theater, has got different steel height. It's got different size wings. It's got different depth of the stage. It's got a different size proscenium, which is greatly going to change how big the fire curtain is. Folks, no two theaters are the same, so there's no normal when it comes to installing rigging. There's no normal at all. And folks, um, lighting can be a bigger disaster if the electrician... So back in the day, folks, most of the lighting systems I did used a build in 9841. I think it was a 9841, which was a two-twisted pair or three-twisted uh, pair of a data-type cable with a shielding. And if they pull the wrong Belden cable, chances are the dimming system just flat out not, might not work, or it might glitch, or some lights might flicker. A really bad day. Another thing is some electricians wouldn't look at the plans and realize each dimmer needed its own neutral. You could not share neutrals on a dimming system. 
So really briefly, an electricity uh, uh, test, okay? Um, the wires that go out to your lighting fixtures when it's an AC system has what's called a hot, neutral, and ground. The hot is kind of like the plus wire in DC, if you understand DC electricity. The neutral is kind of like the ground. And then the ground is a ground to the building. On dimming racks, you can you have to have one neutral for every hot. And electricians, when they're doing industrial work like fluorescence and all that crap, they can share the same neutral throughout most of the building, not on a dimming system. So the most important thing is, is to stalk that electrical contractor you're working with and make sure they know a million times you've got to use this building wire or this alpha wire. The back boxes have to go in these locations and these are the back boxes that you have to put in there. Believe it or not, folks, uh, one reason I grew to... Here, here's one of the problems. And folks, I'm going to be a little bit off color here, okay? And, and this is probably going to get me in trouble. But, oh, I got to be careful how I say this. A really good friend of mine one time told me that dimming systems are like really, really, really beautiful women um, that are really high maintenance sometimes. And he's like, if everything goes perfect, your life is awesome. If everything goes wrong, you don't have any money. You've got an angry girlfriend. You run out of money and she leaves you. So folks with dimming systems, the reason I love and hated them is I made incredible money selling lighting. But lighting was the most frustrating thing I ever did in my life because of how much I had to coordinate with the electrical contractor, electrical engineer. Um, an owner sometime would walk in a room and go, well, hell, this isn't what I wanted. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, I just bid the job. You don't yell at me. <clears throat> so lighting, folks. And here's another thing that's changed in the last 30 years about lighting. 30 years ago, there's only three big players or four big players in lighting. Now there's like 10,000. Uh, 30 years ago, there was only like 20 dealers that did lighting. Now there's like 150. <clears throat> so the piece of that pie we went after 30 years ago was ginormous. So let's say I got a 16th piece of a $500 million uh, industry. That's a lot of money, which I never got that much. But nowadays, you're probably less than one 500th of a piece of that pie that you have the capability of getting with the industry. It's insane. So now what I want to do is talk about big projects for a minute. And what a big project is, folks, it's one of those dinosaurs. I call it the Hindenburg. Uh, I've also referred to them as Titanics. <clears throat> so both the Hindenburg and Titanic seemed really safe up front. Seemed normal, right? Well, guess what? <laughs> the Titanic wasn't normal. Um, and the Hindenburg definitely wasn't normal. Very dangerous things well the titanic just the way they kept going full speed into a ice flow was pretty stupid the hindenburg everybody who flew around it knew that if you have just a little bit of a gaseous leak with those big diesel engines running and with the static electricity that would form with the um, metalized fabric it is it, it going to be a disaster so a big project i'm going to tell you about a big two big projects i did in my life and i hated big projects and I'll tell you why. So my boss walked into my office one day and said, Damon, are we going to do this really big lighting, rigging and all this job? And I'm like, I really don't want to. And he's like, why? And I said, there's just too much risk. It's a big job. So he had me meet with everybody. And I thought, okay, normally I do two jobs during the summer. If I did this really big job that summer, I wouldn't only do one big job. I wouldn't do two of the medium size, like high school rigging and lighting jobs. 
So what's wrong with that whole scenario? Well, if that one big job goes to crap, folks, then it just screwed up my uh, revenue and my my uh, margins for the summer. But, you know, and folks, I'm going to sound arrogant. I, I At the time, I was really good at what I did, okay? So I was really, really careful, made sure that I got with my estimator. We really knew everything about this job. And folks, my boss walked into my office, said, Damon, I'm looking at all these numbers. He goes, are we going to discount this? Folks, I had a boss who owned a company who didn't pay me hardly worth a crap at the time, to be honest with you. He really didn't. I stayed there so long because I absolutely love the job. I love being the sales manager. I love the control of winning. But I was paid crap there. I really was. Now, this guy's long and dead. I don't know if he went to heaven or hell, but that's not my choice. But the thing is, is he's like, are we going to discount this? I said, what do you mean are we going to discount this? Well, Damon, this is a really big number. And, you know, I know this, you know, customer really good. I said, we're not ripping them off. Well, but Damon, you're like almost 45% margin. I'm like, because if this job goes south, we're going to lose money this summer. And plus, I'm not going to be on the road selling for six weeks. And he's like, well, you know, I'm just kind of nervous. And I'm like, who the hell discounts a big job? Folks, when I was on the road, I sold. When I was on the road, that's where I found uh, paths to, to revenue with great margins. This job was so big that me and four of my uh, um, third-party installers were going to be six weeks on a job, not the traditional two and a half weeks that I would normally do on a rigging job in the summer. You know, normally a traditional rigging job, folks, is a week to put in the, the T-bar or J-bar, depending on your flavor, head blocks, loft blocks, locking rail, assemble all the arbors. Week two is you set the arbors on the uh, guide system, the T-bar or the J-bar, you pull the lift lines, you terminate the batten side, the trim chain side, then you hang your battens. Um, and then the beginning of week three is where you hang all your curtain track, you know, with the double and pulley, single and pulleys, all that junk. And then you hang your drapery, uh, your velour, fifty to $100,000 worth of velour that you don't want to get dirty and you don't want it to be too wrinkly. Normally, I could do a rigging job in two and a half to three weeks. This is going to be six weeks. So this had to make up for me giving up two jobs. And my boss wanted me to discount the job. So um, that caused burnout a little bit. So now I want to talk about is lunch and learns. And folks, I'm right on time today for my podcast. And if I can quit talking at the end of this. We'll get out of here soon. So this is the reason there's nothing normal about this industry. So folks, one of the things that I started doing literally 25 years ago was things called lunch and learns. Now, later in life, they really become a lot more uh, by design to really be better sales tools. But basically, you got an architectural firm. And back in the day, there weren't what was called health, safety, and wellness credits. So architects want continual learning. And they get these credits. And when they got the credits, it shows to the owner, you know, we know something about theater. Or we know something about theater safety. Or we know something about um, music ed or all these different things. Okay? And... Um, basically when I'd be working with an architect, they would say, Hey, Damon, do you guys do lunch and learns? And folks back in the day, I didn't even know what a lunch and learn was. And I'd be like, sure. And then I'd call up one of my other rep friends. What the hell is a lunch and learn? Oh, Damon, that's when you're going to go in and see like 15 architects. You bring them lunch and you talk about what you do. And I'm like, are you effing kidding me? I can get 15 people in the same room at one time as a salesperson, folks, my mind exploded in Honestly, folks, over the years, Lunch and Learns became the greatest 
tool I'd ever heard of, of meeting new clients and building relationships. Everything about selling this this industry is relationship sales. And I've mentioned that in past podcasts, folks. But if these people become your friends and they trust you, they're going to hand you their money. <laughs> they really are. But you've got to follow through. You can't ever get greedy and you can't ever rip people off. But I want to tell you about Lunch and Learns and why I think they are the most hilarious thing I've ever done in my life. Um, and there's nothing normal. And you've got to be careful, folks, because, oh, my God, you can offend people if you're not careful. So first of all, you got to put together a presentation that's going to last between 45 and 50 minutes long. And what you're going to normally do is you want to educate them. You can't talk about your particular company and you can't talk about sales in general. You can't say, oh, my Demerec's the best, uh, the, you, the customer, I mean, the, the uh, competition sucks. That's not what these are. These are educational things. So what I'd do is I'd go in there and I explain to them what's different between a high school theater and a university theater. Or I'd describe what's different than the university theater versus a Broadway theater. I'd explain to them the safety on stage, why pit fillers need to be done certain ways. I'd explain why front of house positions need to be designed a certain way, how catwalks are. So basically I'm telling them all the things that they don't know about theater, which is really kick-ass if you're a theater person, folks. Because it's really cool to stand in front of 16 architects and four or five engineers and educate them on theater. How effing cool is that? Okay. But here's the thing, folks. What do you bring them for food? I learned over the years, I asked them. You don't ever assume. So, folks, I kid you not. And I'm not making fun of anybody when I say this. Okay. And I know you're going to think, come on, Damon, you're making fun of this. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm making light of it, but I'm not meaning to put anybody down when I say what I'm going to tell you, okay? So, if I go to Texas, do you know what kind of food they want? It's not barbecue. Um, it, it was usually like fried chicken and later in life, Chick-fil-A. Oh, my God. I remember architects walking and go, oh, my God, we're having Chick-fil-A. This is awesome. And, and you drop $150. You know, it costs you to do a lunch and learn. Most of the lunch and learns I did cost between you know, 120 bucks and maybe 400, depending on it. the biggest lunch and learn I ever did had like 60 people in the room. And folks, just imagine as a salespeople, how fertile that that entire environment is to meet new contacts. Okay, so um, Texas, it was always something really greasy and bad for you. When I went up to California one time, they said, Oh, Damon, we'll order it for you. And you'll just pay when you get here. I said, Cool. That's awesome. So I walk into the room and there's this two or three tables, about 30 feet long. And folks, everything on the table was like um, broccoli, peanuts, nuts, cashews, um, asparagus, um, furry type vegetables. I mean, folks, there was like no meat. And I was like, oh, awesome. I guess they're all, all different out here. I don't mean that in a bad way. And, you know, everybody's just loving this food and they're munching down on it. And I'm trying to think of my back of my mind is like, oh, when I leave here, I'm going to go get me a really, really greasy hamburger somewhere because this is freaking me out watching all these people eat this healthy. Um, then I would go to someplace like Chicago. They all wanted pasta or pizza. So, folks, I started figuring out and, and keep in mind, I would sometimes uh, with my reps do like 30 or 40 luncheon learns a year. And I will tell you something I learned. I never eat with these people. I never partake in eating with them. I was there for one strategic mission to build relationships and um, 
to find a way to sell. So another thing about a lunch and learn is you have that like 45 or 50 minutes that you talk to them about nothing to do with sales. Well, normally you have 10 minutes at the end that you get to introduce yourself and you get to explain to them what you do and the company you work for. And if you're lucky, that turns into another 30 minute discussion sometimes with the president or CEO or whoever runs that architectural firm. Okay. And folks, I would say 85% of the time when we would do a theatrical lunch and learn, people were amazed. Because normally people coming in there are talking to them about toilets, um, you know, architectural lighting, which is actually pretty cool. Or they're talking to them about trazo floors, or they're talking about fire suppression systems. But when you talk about theater folks, there's something really romantic. People's always like, well, have you ever done anything on Broadway? And I'm like, no, I, I've been in a couple of Broadway theaters looking at their fire curtains. <laughs> but, but, you know... Um, Later in life, I was lucky enough that when I worked for an automation company, we did all of the reveal walls for the uh, Grammys. Uh, and I've mentioned in past podcasts, I would not go to that because I hate doing live TV. Don't ever do live TV with automation because if the automation fails, your company's probably going to be sued out of business, okay? There's risk, people, risk. Now, did anything I just described to anybody listening to this sound like being normal? There is nothing normal in this industry, folks, there is nothing normal and you don't want it to be normal. You know, um, Richard Bach had a book called Illusions, which is really good. And so if you want to read and folks, you know, from my past podcast, I'm very dyslexic. And for me to actually get through a book and understand it is really, really hard. And the Richard Bach books that I loved was, you know, the Jonathan Livington Siegel, um, Running from Safety, he had actually one called Stranger to the Ground. It was his very first book. And it's a, a story about where when he was a fighter pilot that he, um, some commander came to him and gave him like a duffel bag full of top secret documents, which he didn't know what they were, threw them in the front of an F-100, I think it was. And he flew them from like Germany to England. And he had to fly around thunderstorms. This is back in like the 60s, folks. And um, he basically talks about everything he thinks about in life and aviation and everything. And, and it's called Stranger to the Ground. It's a really good book. Um, and he's got a lot of books. I've only read three or four of them. Uh, he also had another one, uh, Illusions 2, and it was called The Story of the Reluctant uh, Student, like, you know, when you're learning to fly. But folks, when you start to really look at life, you don't want normal. You don't want safety. You really don't. If you're going to kick ass as a salesperson, if you're going to kick ass in this industry, if you're going to have people always offering you jobs, it's because you weren't normal. You were doing something other people weren't delivering or weren't offering or weren't capable of doing. And um, yeah, that's kind of it, folks. So look, <laughs> a couple of seeds I want to plant at the very end of this that this young man and I talked about. And we're all in, look, I'm not saying that, look, I got to say this right, because the way I was getting ready to describe it made it sound like this young man I'm talking about. Right now, I'm going to talk about all, all everybody I've started talking to since I started this podcast, folks. There's a theme coming out, and this theme is totally understandable, okay? Um, and there is times that you use the word normal. You know, being scared of getting your first job is normal. Being nervous of this industry is normal. Okay, so normal does apply to certain things in life. Okay, you want a normal temperature when you have Ebola. You know, it means you're getting over it. You know, there's certain things in life you do want to be normal. But normal isn't fun. 
if you're trying to be successful and you're trying to be a rock star and you're trying to be a value to people you're wanting to hire you. Normal doesn't cut it. And one theme that I'm really starting to come out of talking to a lot of these young people is the same thing I was when I was 18, 19, or 20. I was scared crapless. Was I going to ever make enough money that I could have an apartment? Was I ever going to make enough money I could have a house? Was I ever going to make enough money that I could actually own and pay off a car? Okay. All of these are normal parts of life. But the best way you can ensure you can do all those normal things is being Abby normal <laughs> at loving theater. Okay. Um, so that said, folks, I mean, I, I'm not going to keep pounding this. It's just the, the word normal to me just, it, it, it makes me just think, oh, and, and one last thing, folks, and, and this is where I could blow up my whole podcast. I sat in a lunch and learn one time. And when I walked in, there was like five cheese pizzas. I'm talking about plain cheese pizza. Then a pizza that had every freaking vegetable in the world without a piece of meat. And then another pizza that was just like nothing but cheese and pineapple. And when I looked at that, I thought for a minute, <laughs> was the lady at the front desk told she couldn't have any food, so she ordered it so that nobody else would like it? And what's exciting about a plain cheese pizza? Now, I know some of you up there listening might be like, oh, Damon, that's my favorite. Well, that's boring. And boring to me has a direct line to normal. Okay? So that's it, folks. Hey, thanks for listening to my podcast. I covered my little bullet points I want to talk about tonight. You don't want normal. Burnout comes from people not doing what you love. Okay, every time I got burned out in life in this industry, it was because people either wouldn't take my advice or understand my experience, understand my passion. Sometimes people just don't understand that there are rock stars in this industry. When I think of myself and about 60 or 80 other salespeople, that's all there is. Really, the best, highest performing salespeople in this industry, there's only probably between 40 and 80, and probably 30 of them are going to retire in the next four or five years. Not me. I'm going to work until I'm 85, and the company I work for pushes me out the front deal in a wheelchair with a box of candy and says, Damon, call an Uber. Get out of here. You're done. So look, everybody, have a great uh, evening, and thanks for listening to my podcast. Please share them. Please support the arts, and please support the young people, people that have that dream. Please support that dream. If, you're, if your kids are in love with theater, let them investigate that. The worst thing they can do is fail. Okay, don't force them to be doctors. Don't force them to be lawyers. Don't force them to be anything. Let them be who they are. Okay, rock on everybody. Have a great night. Take care. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye.